Turn in your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 9. I'm aware that for many of you, you appreciate and like to make notes. I think it's a wonderful thing. It's something I'd encourage us to do. It helps us to concentrate, helps us to review them afterwards. Yet I'm aware I don't always give my titles out. And one of our children, who will remain nameless, but whose name sort of rhymes with something like Tammy Ayla. Um, this is for you, my love. The message title is Glory Above, Glory Below. You know, for all of us as we gather around God's word, we're kind of used to Luke by now. Luke is writing us this wonderful account, this eyewitness account that he's gathered from numerous sources so that we may have certainty concerning the things we've been taught, the things we've been taught about Jesus. And today we come to a really precious passage. It's a long passage, but it is a wonderful passage. And we're going to read together from verse 28 through to the end of verse 50. This is the word of the Lord. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, when he, what he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and he will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demons threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him anything about this scene. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him, put him by his side and said to them, 
whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is is all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. Let's pray and ask the Lord for his help. Lord, your word is sharper than a double-edged sword. And I just pray that it would do what it's been designed to do this morning. Would it illuminate who you are? And would illuminate how we are to respond. Lord, what a treasure this passage is. Oh, would it come alive as we mine it today? Would it come alive in our eyes? Would it come alive in our hearts? Would we be changed as a result? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, one of the TV shows that I used to watch some years ago, one of my favorites, was a wonderful show called Undercover Boss. Sure, many of you saw it. If you don't, it's not a complicated program. They basically take a boss, a CEO or a managing director from like a major firm. So I remember in the shows, I think I saw somebody from Domino's on there once and FedEx. There was the the CEO of FedEx, which was really cool. And some of the famous airlines. And what they do is they take this CEO, this managing director, this boss, and they basically pretend to be somebody just trying out for a job at the company. So they've allegedly got the job. They're having a go at probation, a few different things in the company. And so this boss goes undercover. And as he arrives into the different things, whether it be FedEx or Domino's or whatever it is, maybe he's trying out, you know, for FedEx to, to, to pack boxes or he's working for Domino's and they're teaching me how to make pizzas. What happens is people don't have a clue who this boss is. And so they start talking to him or her about what's going on in the company, what they like, what they don't like. And sometimes they even have it so that this guy or this girl is allegedly doing a a documentary on how the company operates. And so, yeah, sure, come, I'll train you. I'll see how you go, that type of thing. It's a really cool show. But the best part about the show, the biggest and best moment is the big reveal at the end. And so the individual that was maybe training the boss, and usually there's four or five that are involved throughout the show, they get called to the head office. And instantly they start panicking. I mean, what have I done? I've never been to the head office in my life. I've never met our CEO. And then they walk into the head office and they walk into the boss's room and straight away every time their face, their blood just drains from their face. They're like, oh, my goodness. It's it's you. It's the guy I was training what is this how has this worked and then you see them starting to figure out what did i say what did i actually say around my boss and they start to replay all the things they've said about the company and about the management and how it all works the big reveal in the show is always the the best moment of all and right here in luke chapter 9 that is exactly what is happening here as well Because this is the moment of the big reveal. This is the moment where Jesus himself reveals his identity and his personhood and his majesty. This transfiguration moment is indeed a profound moment in the entire book when the glory of God that is within Jesus cannot be contained anymore. And he reveals who he really is. And it's my hope this morning as we come to this text. That we would see even more clearly who Jesus is, 
And in doing so, we'd see even more clearly what it means to follow him. See, as Dr. Luke pens this gospel to us, it's not an accident that he puts verses 28 all the way through to 50 in a row. He's trying to teach us something about glory above and glory below. He doesn't want us just to see who Jesus really is and marvel at it and then be done. No, he wants us to see who Jesus really is and allow that to fuel very specific things in our lives. This is a really quite incredible text. It's a text where we get to see even more clearly who Jesus is. And in doing so, what it really means even more clearly to actually follow him. So two points this morning. Number one, glory above, which is verses 28 to 36. We are going to marvel at who Jesus really is. And then number two, glory below, verses 37 to 50. As we delight in how Jesus lived his life in this earth, and in particular then what it all means for us as his followers. One hope that we would see even more clearly who Jesus is. And in doing so, we'd see even more clearly what it means to follow him. What a text. So point one, glory above. This is the whole scene of the transfiguration, a monumental moment in all of history. And so look with me, we get into the text. Let's read verses 28 and 29 together. It says, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. We're now eight days, Dr. Luke helps us see, since these sayings that happened before. Eight days then since Jesus said to Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter instead, Peter responded on behalf of all the disciples, we believe you're the Christ of God. They were right. And so Jesus then demands that they don't tell anyone at this point because they haven't understood yet what he's exactly come to do. And he tells them, listen, if you're going to follow me, then you're going to have to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. It's been eight days since Jesus has said these sayings, since that event has occurred. And Jesus now takes Peter and James and John on a special mission up the mountain. Now, it appeared just to be able to set the context that this either happened in the early morning or late at night. And it would appear that most likely because we will see later on all these boys are uh, sleeping. When this monumental event takes place, they are having a nap. It is likely that it is first thing in the morning or late at night. But as the boys start to nap, a most incredible thing starts to happen to Jesus. Because as he is praying to his father, the appearance of his face is altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And what a spectacle it was. At this moment, Jesus, framed by a 100,000 stars, begins to transform before their eyes. Matthew tells us that his face begins to shine like the sun. His face and his hands and his feet and his clothing begin to radiate the glory of God. 
Jesus begins to shine like a thousand lightning bolts worth of power. Everything is coming out of his body and it's his glory. It's like his body can't contain it any longer and boom. The whole world that is watching starts to see Jesus for who he really is. And oh my, what glory begins to come from his body. Because as we know by now, this is him. At the top of the mountain standing before them is the Ancient of Days. The one who was and is and is to come. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the one who is supreme in personhood. He is the image of the invisible God, for in him the fullness of God dwells bodily. He's supreme in creation, for from him and through him and to him are all things. As he stands with the night sky around them, it is him that breathed out the stars and set them all in place. It's him that marked off the heavens with the breadth of his hand. It's him that can weigh the scales of the mountain upon which he now stands. For from him and through him and to him are all things. This is him. And oh my, what a big reveal this is. This is Jesus. The ancient of days, the holy one of Israel himself. And what's clear is that all this is going on and Jesus begins to radiate the profound glory of God. He's not alone. There are others there with him. Look with me at verse 30 and 31. It says, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So as Jesus stood there radiating light, two men were with him, none other than Moses and Elijah. Two men who have returned from the glory of heavens to encounter and meet with Jesus in this moment. Two men who had been carefully chosen for this mission, namely Moses and Elijah. Moses, the great Old Testament deliverer and lawgiver. Moses himself, who had been used by God hundreds of years before to march into Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let God's people go. And through Moses, as this deliverer, Pharaoh ultimately did let God's people go. God drew people out of bondage and drew them them into a relationship with him, giving them the law and the tabernacle and so on and so forth. Moses was such an important figure of the Old Testament, and so was Elijah. Elijah, in effect, was the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. When the people of God were all rebelling against God and worshipping all sorts of pagan gods, God sent Elijah. He raised Elijah up to actually proclaim the word of God to people, to help them see you need to stop worshipping all these things and worship the one true God. Something he did with power and miracles as God gave him the ability to do. These are two of the greats of the Old Testament and they are right here now talking to Jesus. And what are they talking to him about? Well, his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. You know, that word departure in the Greek is is simply exodus. They're talking to Jesus about his exodus, which he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Oh, my! how packed full of meaning that is. He's talking to Moses, the one who led the people of God through the original 
Exodus. He's talking to Elijah that built on the top of Moses and helped people understand we need to worship God and God alone. But both Elijah and Moses understand we're both precluding one greater than us to come. And now they're talking to him. You know, Moses by now had been dead 1,400 years. Elijah had been dead 900 years. But they have spent decades and decades in the heavenly realms getting to know Jesus as Savior and Redeemer and King and Friend. And now in this moment, they're talking to him in effect about his exodus, which simply means the cross. They talk to him about what he's about to do in Jerusalem through his death and resurrection and ascension. Wouldn't you have loved to have been listening into this conversation? Maybe they're just encouraging Jesus in what he's about to do, cheering him on. Maybe they have a message from the Father for him. Maybe they're encouraging him with messages from the angels. Jesus, we're all cheering you on up there. You're doing a great job. Keep going. You're so close. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in that conversation. We don't know any of the details, but we do know the big idea. They're talking to Jesus about the cross, the exodus that is to come. Well, remarkably, the disciples have been doing something vital during all this monumental time. They have been asleep. All three of them have been having a nap while all this heroics have been taking place. But they now begin to stir, timed well. Let's look at that in verse 32 and 33. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah not knowing what he said. Listen, my friends, this is this is a humorous moment in the scriptures, okay? If there was ever a time for silence, surely this was it. But yet again, the disciples are stuck on stupid. Yet again, they say things that are entirely inappropriate. Their mouths are moving way quicker than their minds. It would appear as they are rubbing the sleep from their eyes and they see this spectacle before and Peter is like, well, we've got to do something. I know it's good that we're here. Yes, it is. Yes, I can see you. I can see your glory. I can see you. And I can see this is Moses and Elijah. This is great. I know. Why don't we pop a tarp up? Why don't we pop a tarp up? Because, you know, rain can come can come any moment and the wind could get bad. We, you never know. So why don't we pop a few pegs in the ground and build a little tent and you guys can just carry on having a chat. It's one of the most bizarre moments that takes place. And that's why Dr. Luke somewhat humorously adds in the line, not knowing what he said. It's like he's saying, yeah, he was just kind of waking up. He wasn't really thinking. His mouth just sort of shot off. Yeah, yeah, ignore that bit. But he wants to tell us about it anyway. See, this is an incredible moment to come. Because while Peter is stuck on stupid. Jesus in mercy and grace doesn't react to him. He just lets what is about to happen next take place. And what is about to happen is profound. Look with me at verse 34 and 35. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. 
And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. It had been over 600 years since anyone in Israel had seen the Shekinah glory of God. And that's what the cloud was always about. The cloud is a a manifest presence of God. It was a tangible expression of God being with them. We see it many times in the Old Testament. And so, for example, in Exodus chapter 13, we see the pillar of cloud, the Shekinah glory of God leading the people of God by day. And then the glory from within, the fire from within the cloud coming out in the night so that they could be led in the night as well. We see this cloud fill the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 33 and then the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. We do see the Shekinah glory of God. This cloud descend on people several different times in the Old Testament. But for 600 years, there's been no sight or sound of it until now. And as they stand Up on this mountain with Jesus and Elijah and Moses, the cloud begins to come down and they are afraid. They understand this is God. Mm. They see it and they feel it and they are scared stiff. And then out of the cloud comes a voice like no other. A voice that they would recognize oh so easily, namely the voice of the father himself saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. You know, the question of who is Jesus is a question that Luke sets up for his readers all the way back in chapter eight through the actual words of Herod. Herod has got to know and seen the work of John the Baptist, kind of understands him. But he's like, who is this Jesus? Who is he? And it's just left as a pregnant question until the end of chapter nine, when Peter says, I know he is. You're the Christ of God. You're the one we've been waiting for. The anointed one. And what I love about this scene here, it's almost like God the Father in this moment emphatically underlines that statement and makes that statement bold and sticks many exclamation marks after it to assure us, yes, it is him. Peter was right. I am his father. This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. This is the one you've been waiting for. God, the son incarnate. This is him. What a moment. Jesus would go on in his life to say things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He would go on to say, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow livers of riving water. And he would go on to say things like, I am the vine and you are the branches. For apart from me, you can do nothing. My friends, all those statements from Jesus, we should have ringing in our ears. This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. Because this is God speaking to us. When Jesus speaks, God is speaking to us. What a moment. What a moment where the big reveal takes place. 
and placarded before our eyes, we get to see this is him. This is the ancient of days. His glory for a moment cannot be contained within. He begins to radiate and shine like the sun. But in verse 36, we then discover that as fast as this took place, we now also leave the scene. And so as soon as the voice had been spoken, we read Jesus was alone. It's like in a moment you've seen who he is. The voice comes from heaven. Boom. Darkness again. We're on the mountain. All the lights go out. And then as your eyes adjust, you see, well, the cloud's gone. Moses is gone and Elijah's gone and there's Jesus, but he just looks like the guy we walked up the mountain with. Dr. Luke wants us to see that sharp contrast. And he wants us to see it because now he wants to transfer us to glory below. The glory that the Savior walked with. Make no mistake, keep leaning in because there is a lesson for us to learn at the end of this. There's a destination that Luke is seeking to get us to. So point two, glory below. Look with me at verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. We have just been enjoying the sublimeness of the glories of heaven. Now we are moving on to the earthliness of the base of a mountain. The contrast could not be more stark, but it is deliberate by Luke. We've been seeing the glory above. Now behold his glory below. And as he stands at the bottom of a mountain, he is encountered by the desperate voice of an earthly father to please, please come and help my son. His son, this boy, is in a desperate state. He is demon-possessed. This demon has made his little boy both deaf and dumb. This demon regularly takes over this small boy's body. He has seizures. He grinds his teeth. He is convulsed. We read in the other Gospels that this demon will regularly so grip this child that he is then thrown in, throwing himself into fire or throwing himself into water to drown himself. Uh, Imagine the heartbreak that is for parents. This kid is probably eight, nine, ten years old, mate. He's their only son. He's probably got scars on his body from the events that have taken place. And this man runs towards Jesus in desperation. Jesus, please help us. This, this is my only boy. It's all I've got. And, and he's demon possessed. And it's such a tragedy. It's breaking his heart as a dad, watching what is happening with his son. And Jesus tells him, bring him to me. And in a moment, Jesus does the impossible. He rebukes this demon. He totally heals the boy and then he gives this little boy back to his dad. Mm. Imagine the moment. What a wonderful, incredible moment. It says in verse 43, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. And oh, how, how they must have been astonished. One commentator says what was visible only to the chosen three on the mountain 
is here visible to a far greater number. And so it is. What was only visible to Peter and James and John on the mountain of the glory and majesty of Jesus is now placarded before all that are watching in the way he has healed this young boy. Oh my, what grace, what mercy, what power, what kindness. It is so indicative of the glory in which Jesus lived his life here in this earth, isn't it? The way he served people and cared for people and showed compassion on people. He just cared deeply for people. He loved people enough to stop and slow his walk wherever possible to care for them in their needs and to listen to them and love them. Such is the glory of Jesus below. But in truth, there is an even greater glory below that was to come. And it's that that he then refers to in verses 43 through 45, part A. He says, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. They didn't understand it. You see, the disciples by now have indeed figured out who Jesus is. They understand who he is. You are the Christ of God. You are him, the anointed one. But even now, they don't understand what he has come to do. See, even though he's told him in verse 22, I have come to be killed. I am coming to die. It's like it's too difficult for them to comprehend. They still think this kingdom of God that Jesus has come to usher them into is physical and political. They think when we get to Jerusalem, we are going to be sweet. You're going to like throw the Romans out. I'm not sure how you're going to do it. It's going to happen. You're going to throw the Romans out. You're going to rule and reign. We're going to be able to get our freedom back, our happiness back. Everything is going to be sweet as they haven't understood that this kingdom of God isn't physical and political. It is spiritual and everlasting. And so verse 22, he begins to help them see, guys, you got it all wrong. I am who you said I am, but I've come to die. And he reminds them again here in verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. It's that moment when you grab your child by their face. Are you listening to me? And he tells them. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. It is a reminder of verse 22. It's a reminder. I have come to die. But they still don't get it. Jesus has come to give his life away as a ransom for many. That is the ultimate expression of his glory below. But they still don't get it. And it's clear that they don't get it by their Example and illustration in verse 46, when a great argument begins to break out amongst these merry men. In verse 46, we read, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. I mean, talk about sublime to the ridiculous. That's what's going on. Jesus is just communicating to them. I have come to die. And they're like, oh, anyway, let's chat about who's the greatest, guys. And I think it's me. I think I am. You know, it can seem so bizarre. But this argument, what Luke wants to help us see is this argument is so linked to glory below. Because their understanding of 
glory below is that here below I need a position of greatness. See, it's likely, according to the other Gospels, that what they are talking about here is who will sit at Jesus' right and his left when he gets into his kingdom. Mm. What they're discussing right here is when you get into Jerusalem and you, you know, kick the Romans out and you, you become like king overall and everything. I'm thinking, let's discuss who's the greatest. I reckon we've only got two places, your right and your left. And I think I'm great. I think my achievements are good. I mean, he didn't take you up the mountain. Judas, did he? No, he didn't take you. No, he took me. I went up the mountain. I saw him transfigured. There's a whole list of things they're thinking about. But their whole premise is glory below is a place of ostentation and position and worth and achievement. I need to feel that because I need to be great. And the scene is then set via this argument to see Jesus' true glory below. For once again, we see his patience and kindness and grace and mercy on display. But more even than that, this argument also helps us just to set the scene to help us understand what it actually looks like to walk in his glory as his followers. My friends, this is a most important sting in the tail. And it is so important that we understand and heed the words of the father. This is my son. Listen to him. We must Listen to Jesus here. And this is what he says, verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is great among you is the one who is, uh, sorry, who he who is least among you is the one who is great. My friends, what begins with the transfiguration now concludes with the most important lesson on greatness. And oh my, what an important lesson this is. Not only for them, but for us as Well, you see, for them, true greatness meant ostentation and achievement and position. It meant working my way up the ladder, being recognized by Jesus and anybody else that cared to notice how great I am, how gifted I am, how many achievements I've made, what I've done with my life. And so when I get to Jerusalem, I want to sit at your right and you want to left. I want everybody to notice how good I am. And even if nobody notices, even if nobody applauds, that's okay. I'll at least have that inner value and worth in my being that I know I'm pretty good, that I've at least done well in something. True greatness to these disciples 2,000 years ago meant ostentation and achievement and position. It meant working your way up in life and being recognized and valued for that. And you know what? The more I've thought about it this week, the more I've realized I don't think nothing has changed over the centuries. True greatness still means that. True greatness in Sydney, the implication is still true greatness is about ostentation and achievement and position. 
It's about being known for how clever I am and where I went to school and how good I am at my job and what that means I can own. It's about working my way up the ladder and giving my energies to that. Why? Because that's true greatness. Getting to the top, working my way up, true greatness is people understanding how good I am. My achievements, where I sit, who I rub shoulders with, where I live, where I went to school. True greatness is about ostentation and achievement position. It was 2,000 years ago, and I submit to you it still is today in our culture. And so Jesus brings in a child to help us understand that true greatness biblically is not like our culture. Mm. He brings in a child. It's specific. So in Hebrew culture, a child, they'd be loved and obviously enjoyed by their mom and dad. But to everybody else in culture, children were just small and pretty insignificant. That's why the disciples later on don't want Jesus to be hanging out with children. He's like, oh, kids, just just you along, you know, let him speak to people that are important. Children in Hebrew culture were small, not powerful, very insignificant. And so he grabs this boy and he brings him to him and he explains to them, in effect, what true greatness is. And what he helps them see here in this moment, listen, true greatness isn't about ostentation and achievement and position. True greatness is about receiving and preferring and serving others, whoever they may be. And my friends, that's what true greatness is. It's about receiving and preferring and serving others, whoever they may be, man or woman, slave or free, Jew or gentle, adult or child. It doesn't matter. True greatness is just about loving them and receiving them and preferring them and laying your life down to serve others. That's true greatness in the kingdom of God. And no one modeled that better than Jesus himself. Jesus himself in Philippians 1, we discover he was God. And yet he didn't account equality with God, something to be grasped, but instead humbled himself and gave his life away. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, we read, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life away as a ransom for many. Mm. And what Jesus is helping us see here, my friends, is as his followers, as his disciples, we are to do the same. If we want to be truly great, it's not about working our way up the ladder. It's not about ostentation and achievement and position. It's about laying our lives down to serve others, whoever they may be, receiving them and preferring them and serving them. Now, my friends, just as I bring this message to a conclusion, I want to encourage you. I thank God, as do your pastoral team, for the many, many ways we see true greatness being modeled and exhibited in Sovereign Grace Church. Because as I see this, I think of you. You do so well as a church and as individuals in preferring and receiving and serving others, whoever they may be. You do model this so well. Sometimes I'm sure there's many things we do see, but I'm sure there's a whole shed load of things that we don't see in the way you live your life with true greatness. 
And I want to encourage you in it. See, maybe you're online today and you are a mother of small children. Maybe you're presently at home with small children and you're doing the same thing again and again and again. And so when we get out of lockdown and we get on with our lives, you kind of feel you're still in lockdown because it's just happening again and again and again. This kid like eats and they poop and then they don't sleep when I need to sleep. And then they do it all again the next day. And this is the way they go. You're parenting those toddlers and it's just hard work. It's just hands on all the time. Even when I'm on holiday, ah, there they are. They're still there. Listen, our world may not glorify much in what you do. They may think you're wasting your life. As you spend time with that kid at home, they may think, what are you doing? You're just wasting your brain. You're wasting your abilities. You're wasting your gifting. Don't throw away your career for this. Let's get on. Why? Because we think value, position, working our way up. And yet God takes wonderful glory in what you're doing. Because what you're doing is truly great. As you receive and serve and lay your life down for that child, preferring them and serving them, considering them more important than you. That is true greatness. And I want to encourage you, the world may not look on and applaud that, but the Father in heaven certainly does. Or maybe you're a youth at home and you're busy doing your work and it's online at the minute, so you're doing your school online. But then even when you go back to school, you're busy doing that stuff and you see you want to be out the other times, but you're busy at home doing chores, doing things that are helpful around the house. Listen again, the world may not look on and glorify that. They may think that's really weird. Why are you doing that? Let's get on. It's time to be independent. Get alive. Let's get out. But I want to encourage you, the Lord glorifies in that. Because what you're doing is bringing great glory to God because you're exhibiting true greatness, receiving and preferring and serving others for the glory of God. You're doing a beautiful thing. And for so many adults in our church that serve in our church in numerous ways, maybe ways you feel gifted in, maybe not, but you're just busy trying to prefer others and serve. Whether that be through setup or whether it be being a musician or in hospitality or serving in kids ministry, the list goes on. There are numerous ways that you serve. Listen, the world may look on and think, why are you doing that? Every Sunday? Man, there's so many things you could do. There's no glory in that. But each and every week you are bringing great glory to God because what you're exhibiting is true greatness as you receive and prefer and serve others for the glory of God. Listen, when we receive and prefer and serve others, what we are ultimately doing is receiving and preferring and serving God himself. And God sees it all. He sees every sacrifice we make for others. And he says, I love that. You're doing a beautiful thing for me. I applaud it. You're bringing me glory. True greatness is so different in the Bible to what it is in our culture. And so Dr. Luke wants us to see glory below. He wants us to see the way Jesus lived his life by receiving and serving others. But he wants us to see it so that we may understand we are to do the same. And folks, I genuinely believe you do it so well as a church. And yet for all of us, our hearts can grow dusty, can't they? Maybe even coming out of COVID, maybe our hearts are going to be carrying a few COVID kilos. 
And so the disposition of our heart is not great. I'm coming out of lockdown. Oh, good. I can serve people more. Maybe we need to dust off our hearts again today and be affected by the Lord and prepare again and reorientate our minds. I'm going to go after true greatness when I emerge from lockdown. And what that means is receiving and serving and preferring others for the glory of God. You know, this lesson and this text, which begins with the transfiguration, then concludes with a most important lesson on greatness. And oh my, what a wonderful lesson it is. So carefully put together by Dr. Luke for us as he teaches us to behold Jesus' glory above, but then shows us his glory below and asks us to imitate it. So may this be our story, my friends. May we listen to him and may we apply what we've heard and may much glory go to the Lord as a result. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for the glory in which you lived your life. You're him. You are the ancient of days. And it was revealed on this mountaintop in this moment just how glorifying you are. And yet the very next day you come down the mountain and you begin to serve all over again, making your way to Jerusalem. Making your way to a place called Golgotha where you would give your life away as a ransom for many. Lord, did you help us to live our lives like you, namely laying our lives down for others? Lord, did you help us to not be sucked in by the standard of the world that says ostentation and achievement and position is true greatness? But instead, would you, would you help us to pursue what you say is true greatness, which is service and serving all? Lord, there's no way we can do this by ourselves. There's no way we can just muster up something within now to do better in this. We cannot. But we can do all things through you who strengthens us. Lord, when you call us to something, it's because you want to help us then do it. So, Lord, even in song now, as we finish, we return to the true servant one of all. And we ask for your help. Would you help us to become like you? And as a result, we will bring much glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.